Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast to our Read the Bible in a Year program that we are doing with Calvary. This is week 32. Well, this week we have readings from continuing the last little bits of Kings and Chronicles. They're kind of spreading it way out. They are. still in Kings and Chronicles for a little bit, but most of the reading uh, is in the book of Jeremiah this week, and then we also uh, start in Daniel. Hmm. And so taking things just as they appear in the canon, starting with Second Kings and Second Chronicles, both of these are, are covering the really the faltering, the flickering out of the line of David. Uh, Babylon has not done the big exile yet, but uh, we see that they begin deporting some of the the uh, upper echelons of Judea's government and uh, the the wealthy uh, before they do. You know, I guess there really wasn't one single kind of exile they did a couple you know where they took groups of people away and but the whole set happening over the course of 10 or 15 years we just kind of refer to as the exile Uh, but we see that uh the king is taken king jehoiakim or jehoiakim i can never keep the two straight who cares one of the (laughs) one of the joe kings (laughs) well i mean one is god has established and the other is may god establish okay well He didn't because they were lousy. They were lousy kings. Uh, So they're taken into exile. And I know that at least, yeah, for King Jehoiakim, whichever one it is, King Jehoiakim, we actually have some of the uh, receipts produced by the Babylonian court for the food that was given him while he kind of lived as like one of Nebuchadnezzar's little pets, I guess. Uh, and so that's just kind of, an, I mean, not paper receipts, they are clay tablets, but just kind of an interesting little connection to archaeology there. But I think thematically, you know, we've seen, obviously, in the decline of Israel and Judah, just this idea of the corrupted king, you know, that the kings lead the people astray, they are not good people, even when they are, like Hezekiah, you know, he's not totally good. Josiah comes pretty close, but then he rides off to join in battle with Pharaoh and dies, you know, so I mean, they, they continue to make mistakes, even if they're, they're good kings or righteous kings that are faithful to the covenant. But here with these last kings of Judah, we see kind of a new wrinkle on this and this idea of like the captive king. And I think that we will, this, this idea of the captive or the corrupted king uh, will just continue to be important through the story of the Gospels, really, you know, that we have the governors and everything with Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we have the Herods, who are not even fully Jewish people, Israelite people coming in and and taking over the country, or the government at least, uh, who are then in power by the time that Jesus is born, and and the Romans are obviously the, the ultimate authority at that point. Uh, but so even then, the Herods are false kings, and the Herods themselves are captive. They're beholden to a, a higher power uh, Gentile empire that's conquered the land. And so I think we just, yeah, we just see those lines continuing through into the New Testament. I think they become more and more important. We'll talk more about this, I think, when we get to the Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of Mark, just this idea of Jesus being the real king who isn't corrupted, but then who allows himself to be taken captive, you know, very literally and not just he doesn't just eat at the enemy's table for the rest of his life you know and they lived happily ever after but obviously allows himself to be killed and then we get back into the book of jeremiah and we have quite a uh, quite a number of chapters to read and a couple of the big themes that i want you to pay attention to uh, first and foremost is just 
Jeremiah's attacks on not only idolatry, although that is certainly happening, but also just the his kind of unveiling of the false religion uh, of Judea. And so you see this throughout these chapters, I think right at the very beginning of our readings in chapter 7, you know, he, he mocks the kind of dominant thinking, I think, in Jerusalem in that day and age, like, well, God's not going to let anything happen to this city because we have his temple. And, you know, and so Jeremiah repeats it, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And it's like, all right, you can sit and repeat that all day, but that's not going to stop the judgment and the wrath from coming that, that we all have accrued because of our unfaithfulness to the covenant. In large part, because you did these bad things in the place where there is the right. temple of the Lord. <laughs> We also see, this isn't like a huge theme, but I think it's just notable uh, to kind of keep keep track of and be aware of, is that Jeremiah deals a lot with the Valley of Hinnom in these chapters that we read, and that, as far as we can tell, it's one of the valleys outside Jerusalem where they did a whole lot of the child sacrifice. Uh, and then by Jesus' day, it had transformed to what is called Gehenna, which would be kind of the... Whether it was necessarily an actual dump, like we think of as a trash dump, but it was just a kind of a cursed place where people threw things, it was not cultivated, it was not used for anything, so it's just kind of this this pit of uncleanness is kind of this idea. Um, and so, and Jeremiah obviously interacts with it like that. And of course, in his mind, it's about idolatry and death, you know, but... Um, so I just want you to pay attention as he talks about the Valley of Hinnom, that that's the, same, that's the same place that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about Gehenna later in the Gospels. We also see, and we, we referenced this last week, but then we actually get some of it this week, a lot of like Jeremiah's biographical touches. Mm-hmm. And so Jeremiah is, I think, unique in terms of the main prophets. Isaiah and Ezekiel don't really do this, at least not nearly as much is like commenting on their own career as prophets. <laughs> yeah. And really how much Jeremiah wishes he could do anything else than what <laughs> God has called him to do. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, Jeremiah's ministry is a little different than the other two. I mean, Jeremiah, he, and I'll say this, say more about this in a minute. I mean, he has some promises and some pictures of restoration, but I mean, it is mostly, you know, buckle up folks because this is going to be a bumpy ride you know very much so and so he cries all the time you know he's the weeping prophet and uh yeah and so i think it's just it's it's a kind of just on its own it's a fascinating look into like someone's actual experience as a person kind of going through these things but then i think it's also I, i think it can be a if not a comfort or maybe a cold comfort, maybe, that, that that being obedient, being faithful can be really difficult and come with a very high emotional, personal, financial cost. And, and Jeremiah is a good example of that. And I think as well, I mean, Jeremiah, at least in my opinion, my reading, like he has the closest kind of spiritual kinship with Jesus. And I don't mean that in terms of like, I don't know, he was the closest to God. But like, I feel like Jesus is most like, or the other way around, I suppose, the Jeremiah's life, Jeremiah's ministry of, again, the three big ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that Jeremiah seems to be the kind of hues the most closely to kind of Jesus's experience in Jesus's life, you know, that Jesus is crying over Jerusalem, you know, crying over the the effects of death, interacts with the rulers and authorities of his country, but they do not like him and, and seek his ruin and, of course, eventually actually kill him, whereas Jeremiah gets away. He doesn't want to, but he's he's forcibly kidnapped. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I just think that's, that's just interesting to think about a few other things here. I want you to note, uh, we just see Jeremiah 
Jeremiah doesn't just preach or he doesn't just verbally prophesy, but he also does what we would call prophetic acts, mm-hmm. um, which are kind of these these dramatic, symbolic gestures, grand symbolic gestures uh, that uh, Ezekiel does as well. And so we'll talk about that in a few a few weeks. But Isaiah, I think not as much. I guess his kid being born was a dramatic gesture, but Isaiah directly contributed very little to that (laughs) grand (laughs) prophetic gesture. Hmm. Uh, But Jeremiah buys a belt, you know, and lets it get all gross. And then, you know, and and does these other things. He visits the potter's house. You know, he does all these different things that, that uh, are symbolic of the message he's preaching. I think, again, we can look ahead and kind of see a lot of Jesus's life back flected you know into jeremiah that jesus also did a lot of these they weren't just grand symbolic gestures but in terms of the miracles they did actually save and deliver and heal but then they were also pointing beyond themselves uh, to the message of the coming kingdom and the last thing i'll say about our passages in ezekiel here is we get one of the very famous or jeremiah excuse me one of the famous passages in jeremiah jeremiah 29 which is his letter to the exiles Mm. so these would be the folks that were already have already been taken to babylon and uh, the famous lines you know for i know the plans i have for you says the lord plans to prosper you and not harm you to give you a future and a hope Uh, we love that you know for posters and t-shirts and things and it's a good encouraging verse you know all god's promises are yes to us in christ jesus but as always, it's important to situate things within their actual context within the Bible. So Jeremiah is saying that in this letter to people who have been forcibly taken from their homes in Jerusalem and Judea, relocated to a foreign city, surrounded by people that they don't know, language they don't speak, food they can't eat, and gods that are, you know, the embodiment of death and greed and destruction. And he says, don't try and leave, <laughs> you know, but plant gardens, build homes, settle down because you're going to be there for a long time. Um, so that's that's kind of his his uh, the gist of the letter of the exiles. And that, and that, of course, comes again with promises of restoration. And we'll see more of that, I think, next week when we get into some of the things that Jeremiah says about the new covenant. Basically, talking about God's people and their forays into idolatry, one of the things that he says is, Am I the only one, or am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? So the idea here seems to be that Yahweh is saying that our idolatry actually harms us. What does he mean by that? Because it, what we think of with idolatry is that we are robbing God of something, right? We're taking our, our worship, which is rightly owed to him, away and giving it to something else. But the idea here isn't just that, that, we're not doing the thing we should do. We're sinning by, by doing something we shouldn't do. Like there's a harm accruing to the idolater. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what that means. Yeah, that's a good question. And Jeremiah has, I mean, a number of times where he kind of says, makes the same sort of comment. And, and uh, I think, again, that's off the top of my head. I feel like that is kind of a unique contribution of his amongst the major prophets. Because Isaiah... Generally, it's the emphasis, his emphasis lies a little differently in just terms of how stupid it is. <laughs> Conceptually stupid. Mm-hmm. And Ezekiel, again, is a kind of a different emphasis. Yeah, I think that, that there's a couple a couple ways that we can think about that, that we see the Bible kind of weaving together. And, and we've, over the course of the last few weeks, talked about idolatry multiple times. And I think it's good to talk about because... We don't, we as Westerners don't have a lot of direct experience with like actual 
you know, textbook idolatry. You know, you can go to Southeast Asia or some other places in the world where there are, you know, beautiful temples filled with beautiful statues or ugly statues, and then people literally worship them. And we don't do that as much here. And But that doesn't mean we're any less the idolaters, you know? And so idolatry is, is present in our lives, but it's it's much harder to to see. And I mean, mm-hmm. we've we've talked about that a few times, just how difficult it is, I think, to spot. In some ways, it would be more convenient if we had shrines with statues in them because we, then we'd have things to knock over. Uh, but, you know, I think that maybe in the most direct sense, you know, that part of what God means or that Jeremiah means in this, this verse is that they are transgressing the covenant. They're breaking the covenant and there will be punishment for that, you know, just like any other covenant made between two parties. Like when you're in breach of faith, you know, there are penalties that, that accrue because you've done that. And so I think that that's, I think just part of it is that you've done this thing and now there's going to be consequences, legal, you know, righteous consequences for that. I think as well, you know, and we've, we've talked about this multiple times too, that idolatry, and this is true for them and for us, but that idolatry also always has what we would think of as like political components, I think, wrapped up in it, you know, that they're worshiping these foreign gods, not just because they think they're cool or, or will do things for them. That's certainly part of it. But part of the reason why they think they're cool is because they belong to these powerful nations around them, you know, and so it's that Israel, or excuse me, Judah is trying to be something that it's not or reaching for military or financial power that that can only be ill-gotten, you know. And so I think that's part of why in the prophets we see that idolatry goes hand in hand with mistreatment and oppression of the poor. Mm. You know, you can't separate those two things. You know, again, idolatry fuels military competition, fuels grandstanding, you know, in the in the international realm, fuels debt and wealth disparities and, you know, rich landholders gobbling up all the little farms. And I mean, just all these things that erode society as a whole. So again, they're hurting themselves, you know, because they're they're mimicking the ungodly practices of some of these other nations. Um, and, and all of that is also part of transgressing the covenant. So, I mean, those two things are not mutually exclusive. The last thing I'd say, I think, in more of a direct kind of personal way, that the Bible is very clear you know, the Bible's very clear, even though it doesn't necessarily say this outright, <laughs> but, you know, as you read it over and over again, you see these same, the same pattern uh, unfolded, you know, is that we are not made to worship anything other than the creator. And so that when we worship things other than the creator, it just goes badly for us. And I think you can see this. I mean, there are plenty of examples, you know, in our own day and age, right? The people who worship their own bodies or people who worship their family or people who worship their country. Like, I don't want to say they go crazy, but like their lives are out of order. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are real consequences to that. They hurt themselves and they certainly hurt people around them, you know. uh, And it's always, you always wind up hurting and hating the thing that you think you're worshiping. Yeah. And so I think that it's that just there it is of like you were, we're slowly killing ourselves, poisoning ourselves, you know, in the, our attempts to worship these other things. And I think that they, they were as well. Yeah. The term that comes to mind for me when we talk about this is what you just said is spiritual formation Mm -hmm. and that in worshiping something other than God, you are, you are always being spiritually formed. Like that is always happening. 
And when your worship is idolatrous, you are being spiritually formed in a direction you do not want to be spiritually formed in. Whether that idol be yourself, whether it be the god Moloch, whether it be money or your country, whatever it is, the spiritual formation that is happening inside of you is bad when it's not, when Yahweh is not the object of your worship. There's in chapter 14 and then again in chapter 23 and several other places too. Those are just the ones that that jumped out at me. Um, So we've got chapter 14 starting in verse 14 and then chapter 23 starting in verse 25 and following. We hear about false prophets who are lying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're prophesying lies. Now, there's, there appears to be a couple of different forms of, of false prophet. There's the false prophet that is prophesying on behalf of a god other than Yahweh. And then there are the false prophets that are claiming to be prophets of Yahweh. And I think there's some question. I think that the spectrum covers both those that know they're prophesying lies and those, Jeremiah says at one point, that are prophesying out of their delusions. So they, they believe they're prophesying truly and aren't. And I just would love for you to talk about, I mean, Yahweh's strong stance against false prophecy in Jeremiah, we see repeated throughout the Old Testament and in the New. Is that something that we um, we should be careful of attributing things to God today? Because I think that part of our common parlance in evangelical churches is to say, you know, God has told me Da, 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 da. And sometimes we find that a person says that and the thing isn't true. Is that is that false prophecy? The New Testament tells us that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit in a new way that God's people prior to Pentecost weren't or weren't forever or weren't their whole lives or however we want to think about that. And so, you know, I think that that I don't know all the implications for what that means or the change but i think that we ought to acknowledge that there is a change and jeremiah references this as well that with the coming of the new covenant the torah will be written on our hearts you know so there's some way in which god's presence god's instruction god's wisdom is going to be within us in a way that it wasn't within them in saying that though i think that that sometimes gives christians a false sense of confidence in their own leading or conscious or or thoughts or whatever else because well i have the holy spirit so if i have a thought it must be from the holy spirit and i think we should be very cautious about that um i think that humble i think is the way that is is the word perhaps <laughs> a humble a humble caution and paul says this right test the prophecies like don't just take it all as as the word of god because much of it probably isn't you know, I think that whenever we, whenever scripture comes to our minds, either for ourselves or to, or in a conversation with somebody else, I think that's a closed case, like share that, like we can be, you know, now of course that can be improperly done as well, right? But I think we can rest pretty sure on, on the words, the, the words of God <laughs> revealed in scripture and, and sharing those things. But again, I think even with that, you know, of, of wanting to be very humble about, you know, how does that apply to our situation now? You know, I think especially, I think there is more leeway when you're talking about yourself, like, oh, God has, God told me that this, he wants this for my life, or he is going to do this in my life. It's like, all right, I mean, great, let's see what happens. But I think if if you're going to say that over somebody else, again, we should just be very cautious about that, because we may have misunderstood, Mm -hmm. 
or we may be just making it up in our overactive imagination or, you know, uh, and so, yeah. Now, I think what's difficult about that is, is that we can be so afraid that the caution turns into fear so that we never say these sorts of things to one another or whatever else. And I think that's a mistake as well. Um, you know, because Paul says, do not despise prophecy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I mean, there's there's wisdom, you know, and, and discernment to be engaged with here. In my personal experience, I feel, and Jeremiah says this in one of the chapters we read, he just talks about like, is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that smashes rocks. Like in my, my experience, of like having other people share things that they think God has said. Like you can, you know, when somebody is just kind of a silly person. <laughs> uh-huh. And that doesn't mean that God can't speak through them, but it's just like, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, sure. Maybe again, mm-hmm. we don't just take everything as at face value, you know? And so, yeah, I think that, that, discernment is called for discernment you know of the body right and so i think that the holy spirit speaks through us you know as a whole generally i mean obviously the church the whole church can make a mistake as well but yeah we want to be we want to have cautious humility in in these things but also not letting that turn into a fear so that we never say things because we're you know um, I think that, that, yeah, I think the humility is important, you know, knowing that it may turn out that we're wrong or we misunderstood something or we're just making it up. And I think if, if we have to repent of like confidently proclaiming something in the name of God, I think that's, I'm not saying you can't repent and be forgiven of that, but I just feel like that's a naughtier corner to get out of then. Well, I thought maybe this was what God meant. But I guess it's not. I guess not. One of the things that occurred to me as I was reading through Jeremiah, not this time, but not too long ago, was that it is easier for us to, I think, think that false prophecy is a thing we would never engage in um, and to see them as as mindless, bad-intentioned villains. Mm-hmm. But putting yourself in the position of God's people at this time and trying to imagine your things are bad and and your king has been carried away and like Assyria's fallen but Babylon is there and he is they are not happy with you they've already taken a bunch of your people away the average person i think is is low and the desire of priests and holy people would be to remember the goodness of your god and to proclaim the salvation that he's going to bring and here's Jeremiah, this prophet, that's just only talking about more bad things coming. And you see that hurting the people around you mm-hmm. and distressing the people around you. I could see myself feeling the need to proclaim good things coming because God is a good God. And especially if a small corner of people are repenting, you know, you 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 can just imagine a scenario in which these are not villainous people. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yahweh is very serious that you do not claim a thing has come from him when it has not come from him. And that's, I think, a very important distinction here is that our intuitions about what God is going to do ought not translate into our promises that Yahweh is going to act to other people because we actually don't get to do that. We don't get Mm -hmm. to decide and promise what he's going to do. He does that. We don't. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important, and this is kind of the the rule of thumb that the church has followed really from the very beginning, is that 
any any quote unquote you know messages or words that people get in the church are always going to be derivative from scripture, meaning mm-hmm. they're going to be in line with what's been revealed in scripture and they're not going to add anything to it. You know, and so I think that, and I know in different church circles, you know, one of the questions that's bandied about is like, are there still prophets in the same uh, register as biblical prophets? And I mean, I, th- I, I would say no, certainly not. And I think that the, the, the proof of that is, is that we stopped writing the Bible. <laughs> So there were apostles, they spoke and wrote prophetically, and then it was done. And that's Mm -hmm. not to say that God doesn't speak through people. He still does. And we see that throughout the history of the church and our own experience. But again, it's always derivative of scripture. It's not on the level (laughs) of the revealed word of God. And so I think that that I think that's been helpful for me in terms of the whole caution fear thing, because it's like I'm not claiming that something is that what I have to say should be on the level of scripture. Sometimes people have throughout church history, and those people have always been crazy and wrong. <laughs> At least we hope. Wouldn't that be a twist? Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. And so I think that's just an important thing to think about, too, that, that you know, it, it's always going to be derivative of scripture. It's not going to be in a good way, you know, like based off of, of what we already know. God's not going to tell us something entirely new today he's going to tell us or really he's going to tell us something that we've already learned or that the bible's already revealed but maybe in just a fresh way for us in our particular circumstance Mm -hmm. and even if it if ever there were a time god was telling us something that you could think of as entirely new it would not be contrary to anything that has come from scripture Uh, and and i mean you know calvary is not outwardly like very charismatic church necessarily but i mean i know the different people i mean you know we're mm-hmm. gifted in different ways and so people there are, we do have people who i think get messages from the lord you know uh in a in a kind of in a spiritual gift sense but i think that you know wise wise instruction that i've received over the years is that you know we've talked about this too that there's kind of two two elements to what we would call you know prophecy that there's foretelling like things that are going to happen in the future and then there's forthtelling like kind of revealing the heart of god or the plan of god or the will of god for the situation right now and we've talked about <clears throat> excuse me multiple times over the last couple of weeks that the foretelling the prediction is always subservient to the forthtelling you know and so translate that into today you know i think that I'm not saying that people don't get predictions of the future from God. I think they do occasionally. <laughs> but I think that we need to be very, very <laughs> cautious about that. Huh. You know, uh, because people are just wrong a lot. Yeah. A lot. They're wrong about big things, like when the Lord's coming back and what's going to happen on the geopolitical stage. They're also wrong about little things. You know, so there was a class I took once, and the lady, and she was absolutely right. I'm trying to remember exactly what she said. But we were talking about prophecy, and she was like, yeah, my instruction to you would be, even if you get a word about it, keep it to yourself. Anything about dates, mates, or babies. One of the the sayings that my historical theology professor used to to make, so when he would go, he teaches Spanish speakers in different parts of the world as well. And a common question that comes up in different Hispanic churches is about prophets and apostles, modern mm-hmm. day prophets, mm-hmm. modern day apostles. And so the saying was always, no es muertos, no es apostolos, or no es muertos, <laughs> no es profetas. In other words, if they're not dead, 
they're not a prophet or an apostle. <laughs> and the, the, because that's done. Uh-huh. And now there are still people with a gift of prophecy. Right. But that is not like Jeremiah right. speaking it's to you. It's just not the same it's thing. It's not yeah. the same thing. It's it derivative. It's secondary, secondary prophecy. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's important. And anyone claiming that kind of assuredness usually is saying weird things. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know. I guess we're, that's we're fair. We're going to get to Ezekiel. <laughs> I guess that's fair. One of the things that's been happening in Jeremiah is we've been seeing over and over again that that judgment is coming. And even in different places, we're hearing that even if even if people turn back, there's still judgment coming. There's still punishment coming. But then here in 1710, we hear, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And we've seen, we see other messages like this throughout scripture, that it is, that judgment comes not, not to the group, but to the individual. And yet the overwhelming message of the prophets is that judgment comes and deliverance comes to the group, not the individual. What, what do we do with verses like this? You know, I think we, part of it is we acknowledge that neither individualism or collectivism is a hundred percent the case like both are true and i think in some ways we we almost see a movement within the old testament itself not necessarily away from collectivism like the group uh, element but really more to incorporate the individual element into the group element Mm -hmm. you know and so i think that i mean there's a tension there as well between deuteronomy and then what's coming in ezekiel between you know ezekiel's very clearly says that a son will not die for his father's sins but then you have Yahweh's revelation to Moses that I'll punish the sinful generation to the third and fourth, you know, uh, generation. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm not saying those things are uh, contradictory or one of them isn't true, but just that, you know, I think that, that there is even, I think within the unfolding of the covenant itself, I think there's a, a move to incorporate kind of the individual conscience as an important element in the life of faith, not just belonging or rather, you as an individual belong to God's people, maybe. Uh, but you can't. That you are not covered by your group affiliation. You have a group f- affiliation because of your personal allegiance and faith to Yahweh. How about that? Mm-hmm. You could say it like that. You know, and I, because I think that's what we see in Jesus. I mean, Jesus obviously saves individual people and he saves them into a people, the church. But you're not. You know, that doesn't go the other way. And, and again, the Christian history, church, different churches have grappled with this in different ways, you know, in terms of children born into the faith, you know, and how does it work? Evangelicalism, I think, rightly has has correct or has uh, emphasized the need for personal, a personal change, a personal turn, a personal recognition, you know, of, of Christ's lordship and, and what he's done for us. You know, so I think, yeah, I think we see that emerging, you know. In these later books of the Bible, especially uh, just this idea that the the individual before God is is in the is in the mix of all of this, that it's not just oh they're judged or they're rewarded as a whole as a people. Um, and again, I'm not saying that it's moving away from that. I mean they're being punished as a whole, even though there probably were righteous Judeans. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but kind of it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know that the judgment, the wrath is coming anyway, um, and. You know, at the same time, you know, you think about the the kind of uh, socioeconomic 
situation that we're pretty sure for the most part that it's the rich and powerful that get taken away to Babylon because it's only a few thousand people. Like it's actually not that many people and they're almost all priests, royalty, you know, the folks living in Jerusalem. So who gets left behind? The poor the poor ones who were being taken advantage of by mm-hmm. the people that were just carted out of Jerusalem. You know, and so it's like when Jesus says that the meek will inherit the land, like in some ways I think wow. he's thinking yeah. about the exile, you Good know. Point. That, uh, you know, so you think about these, these, and I'm not saying that all the elites were bad. We know that's not true. I mean, Daniel, for instance, was some somehow kind of in the mix of royalty, and, and he was a good man. Ezekiel was a priest, was a Levite, or was training to be one. But yeah, so it's just this idea of like, so God judges each individual. He knows, you know, and so, and I think we, we kind of see that play out, right? Certainly on the big scale, like I just said, if if the poor people tend to be generally speaking the ones being taken advantage of you know they're left behind and they inherit the land whereas the evil rich people are the ones taken away and, and kind of punished by the exile in babylon jeremiah chapter 20 is kind of the most famous version or part of this where jeremiah speaks out of his own experience and it seems like jeremiah is unwilling is not the right word but a reluctant prophet mm-hmm. and when he it, it implies that he tries not to give prophecy and then it just burns within him Yahweh has selected him and his choices are are very very few it seems like like the the role of prophet is given to him mm-hmm. and of course we're reading poetry we're reading about his personal experience but if we were to read this I think the we, I read about, I'm, I'm, I get the feeling of a depressed person here. Mm-hmm. And do we think that that's what is happening with Jeremiah? Do you think he's a, do you think he's, I'm not saying, do you think he's mentally ill and so not actually a prophet, but do you think that's the case that we have a manic depressive person or a depressed person here? Can we have any insight into that? Oh, I don't think so. No, because a lot of I mean, times. we're not clinicians. No, we're not. That's fair. <laughs> And we can't diagnose a person. But one of the things that is frequently brought up as a comfort to people that struggle with mental illness is that we see we see even among God's chosen um, oh, sure. people that struggle with. Yeah. What are just their based on their own, again, their reported, you know, kind of interior mm-hmm. state, you know, without di- trying to diagnose Jeremiah. Certainly, I think we can we can see his example or others in different ways that that what we now think of as things like depression or anxiety or these other things don't exempt people from belonging to God's people and certainly don't exempt them from being used by God in in powerful ways. Yeah. yeah. Because true. we think of Job, we think of Jeremiah. I mean, right. Job even longs for death. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremiah, likely because of what he's actually experiencing, the hardship that he's going through, but it just seems like he has these really low periods. Mm-hmm. And it is maybe an odd way, but a I think a true way of finding comfort if you are a person that struggles with mental illness, that, that some of the most important characters in the Bible, they struggle with feeling worthy. They struggle with, with enjoying life. They struggle with happiness. And yet God uses them in powerful, magnificent ways. We also get a few chapters into the book of Daniel uh, this coming week. And these are some of the most famous uh, stories, Sunday school stories, church stories. Um, And so 
Daniel and his friends are young men taken from Jerusalem in one of the kind of early little exiles. Uh, and again, they must have been either part of the royal family, not necessarily like directly princes, but somehow they're, they're in the mix there because those are the sorts of people that Nebuchadnezzar was removing. And so they're brought to Babylon uh, and they're trained... They're probably made eunuchs at some point, which Daniel doesn't really tell us, but they're being trained up into the the royal administration bureaucracy, and almost all of those people were eunuchs, and so, sorry, Daniel and and company, (laughs) but uh, they're they're being trained up for that. And we see here a couple of things, and we can can talk about it uh, more, but just very briefly, you know, I think that there's three three themes that we see here in these first chapters of Daniel and that really carry us throughout the book. One is just this idea of what it, what does it mean to be faithful in exile? So in some, in some ways, I'm not, I'm not saying this directly, but just literarily that Daniel is almost like a, a living out of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in terms of, you know, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, like you're, you're going to be there for the long haul. I mean, Daniel does not act like a man who thinks he's going to go home anytime soon. Like they, they just seem they're settled in terms of we're here and this is where we're going to stay. And rather than going total Babylon person, you know, and just completely forgetting about their heritage or refusing to participate in any way with the pagans around them, like Daniel and his faithful friends chart, I think, a middle, a wise course of what does it mean for us to be faithful to Yahweh in a foreign land, but also to be a blessing to the people that were around. And so I think that, that Daniel definitely harkens back to kind of the original promise given to Abraham that I will bless who you bless, and then all the nations of the world will find blessing in, in this family. So Daniel's a living embodiment of that. Connected to that, I think, is this idea of wisdom. So that Daniel is a a paragon of wisdom just in his responses, how he treats the others around him, and then also in his ability to interpret dreams. And I think that there's we see throwback a throwback to Joseph here, obviously. I mean, that's the last major figure for which dreams uh, played a large role, you know, in, in the story. And that Daniel, certainly through revelation, but I think also just through the wisdom that God gives him, is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And what these dreams are about are kind of the fate of kingdoms. Um, and so we see, and that is a through line through the entire book of Daniel. Uh, and and, uh, and I think that the we start to see in Daniel, really for the first time, I think in a significant way in the Bible, the genre that is called apocalyptic. Um, and I think that for many of us, when we hear the word apocalyptic or apocalypse, we what we hear is things having to do with the end of the world. And that can sometimes be what apocalyptic is about. But what that word really means is that it means an unveiling or a revelation. And so it's this idea of like, so there's the way that the world seems, but then there's what's happening under the surface, right? And so it's a, it's a rolling back of the curtain, so to speak, or the lifting of the hood of the car. I mean, whatever metaphor you want to use, that's sort of the idea of like what's actually running underneath all of this. And so when Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams that appear to be about other things, trees or statues or whatever else, Daniel can rightly see that actually what's happening is, is a window into kind of the workings of history over which Yahweh is supreme. And that really is the point when we see apocalyptic writing in scripture. That is always the kind of the bedrock at the bottom of all the weirdness is that God is the God of history. He's the God of all these other nations and that nothing that is happening to his people 
is happening outside of, and of course there, that brings up many questions for which we have no clear answers, but that nothing is happening outside of God's control or I think God's plan for the future, um, which I think is a very comforting, it's a comforting notion for people who've just been displaced from their, their homeland. And I think it helps explain the faithfulness, right? That not in a way of like that, you know, in private moments, Daniel would snicker and go, haha, Babylon's going to get theirs. <laughs> Daniel doesn't do that. Some of the other prophets do that, but Daniel doesn't, you know, but at the same time, just to know that like, all right, like things are still quote unquote on track. Like Yahweh knows what he's doing. His promises are still happening. Like we're okay. Like I may be away from home. I might've been turned into a eunuch. I might be being trained up to be part of this, you know, idolatrous Gentile empire, but like, I'm still a part of the, the people of God and his covenant promises are still unfolding. Why do you think, so the book of Daniel in the Christian Bible is numbered with the prophets, uh-huh. uh, but in, in Jewish texts, he's, it's considered part of the writings. Why do you think that is different? I think as well, like I said, that Daniel is, is seen as a paragon of wisdom. I think Ezekiel like lists him as one of the wise men think so. of the East. I think it's Ezekiel. And so I think just that, you know, that he's a figure. The other prophets, it's not that they're not wise, but they're not seen as like being an example of wisdom, I think, like Daniel is. And so I think that that might help explain yeah. why he's, he's the book's categorized differently in the, the uh, Hebrew Bible. It's interesting. One of the things that I've heard before is that since he's a statesman, he doesn't and can't occupy the role of prophet hmm. like the the it's a like the kind of the marginal role yeah the the, being have. the outside yeah. of the the system speaking into it he's actually inside the system and so cannot have the same kind of mantle or office of prophet mm-hmm. and <laughs> he can't go wander around the desert right. for a few weeks yeah right um yeah, yeah that's 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 a good uh but, yeah the the other which reason, again is oh, similar to joseph i mean there really are a lot of parallels i mean joseph's yes. not Genesis is its own, you know it's not just about Joseph but that just made me again think about yeah that Daniel's kind of a, a second Joseph, Joseph in a lot of ways he is um, although a better one right because Joseph yeah. has to hear the dream before he can interpret it that's true and Daniel is <laughs> Daniel, a step beyond yeah Daniel can gets the gets what the dream is and then also interprets it yeah yeah I'd love to know what in two thirty nine we get this kind of famous prophecy from Daniel that is. <laughs> A kind of prophecy that is in some ways come back to in chapter seven, but we have him here interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he's mm-hmm. talking about after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Then a third kingdom of bronze will rule over the earth. And finally a fourth kingdom strong as iron for iron breaks and smashes everything. What there's been a lot of time spent examining what these kingdoms could be. And it's not told in the book of Daniel itself. There's no, this kingdom is this, right? Would you be willing to speculate on what the, the kingdoms are? Or is there a consensus? My interpretation is that we are looking uh, that, that kind of Daniel's scope of, of kind of the future that he's seeing or that he's operating under, under kind of stretches to the coming of Jesus under the Roman Empire. And so I would say that uh, the statue, the the feet, the legs and the feet would probably be Rome. Um, and I think that matches up 
later with the vision of the beasts in seven you know you have the succession of, of beastly empires rising out of the ocean and the final one is the worst of them all mm-hmm. you know it's like well that that reads like rome to me um i mean i know that again it, it just depends you know where people and i don't know the reason why daniel doesn't outrightly tell us is perhaps because it's not quite important <laughs> which oh, sure. the actual kingdoms are but rather again the this idea that you know one that gen- the, the power of these gentile empires is ultimately resting on very a very unsteady foundation you know that they that won't last and again that god for whatever his reasons are i mean there's a sequence that will occur and then the kingdom of god will come you know and that's that you know that there's um, and so I think that, you know, again, throughout ch- church history is different people have tried to match up, you know, and I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think it's wrong in terms of like being evil, you know, sure, yeah. go for it. Why not? But I don't know if it's actually going to like help you live your life any differently, <laughs> like which one of the, you know, rather than sure. just meditating on the, again, the, I think the overall point that, you know, the, the power of these empires is limited. You know, they have a time where they're allowed to rule and then God ends that time and, and brings in something, the new thing, which again, ends with the coming of the, the kingdom of God, which is not cut by any human hand. Again, pulling from a little ahead of ourselves from Daniel 7. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. <laughs> Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.